Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. The topic of climate change and the future of our planet is both important to us, but also difficult to understand. But if we want to know more about our future, we need to take a look into the history of our planet and our species. In his latest book, Our Fragile Moment, Dr. Michael Mann walks readers through our paleoclimate record and illustrates how it can serve as a roadmap to preserving our fragile moment. What you decide to do from there is entirely up to you. Dr. Mann, thank you for joining us today on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. It's great to be with you. Well, and I'm going to call him Michael from this point on because we know each other well, good friends and colleagues. But uh, Dr. Michael Mann needs no introduction. He's one of the top scholars in the world on the topic of climate change and earth system science. So it's really an honor to have you here. I I start with the the same question. So uh, I'm going to start it with you as well. How'd you become a weather geek, or in this case, perhaps a climate geek? Yeah, thanks. Um, and, uh, you know, it's great. Like I said, it's great to be uh, with you, my friend. Um, you know, uh, I had a sort of circuitous path um, that led me into climate science. I was an undergraduate uh, double major in applied math and physics at UC Berkeley, and then I went off to uh, Yale University to study physics. Um, I was going to do my PhD in in theoretical physics. And then I ran into uh, a guy named Barry Saltzman, um, who was a uh, a scientist, a geoscientist in the Department of Geology and Geophysics, um, and realized that there were some really exciting opportunities to use the math and physics that I'd learned to work on this huge problem, understanding Earth's climate system. And so I literally left the physics building, walked down the, the hill, um, ended up transferring into geology and geophysics to work with Barry on uh, both modeling Earth's climate system and studying data that can shed light on the climate system and climate change. Now, one interesting little historical footnote uh, that I actually talk about in the book, um, uh, Barry in his later years got into uh, sort of deep time paleoclimate, understanding the ice ages, climate changes over hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, But he actually started out in meteorology, in weather. And in fact, uh, it was his equations, uh, sometimes called the Lorenz-Saltzman equations. Uh, It was the solution of this system of equations that he had developed to uh, understand certain weather problems that led uh, Ed Lorenz, who was a contemporary of his at MIT, um, to uh, basically discover what we now 
called chaos, uh, the fact that the weather exhibits this um, uh, very interesting property where it's unpredictable uh, beyond some time scale. Um, so Barry, you know, had a, a actually had a, an important role in that particular uh, discovery, but he went on to study climate and long-term climate dynamics, and, and that's what he was doing when I went to work with him in the early 1990s. Really good introduction. Uh, a, a typical path for many of us in the field, but also there are many stories. And so that's why I like to gauge the guests and is our listeners so that they can understand how different people kind of get in this field. Because, I mean, you know it. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating that you're one of the most well-known scientists in the world, particularly in climate, but just in general. You're also uh, one that's often attacked, one that's often, um, you know, the, the, on the other side of vitriol and some other things that we perhaps will get into. But I want to give the listeners uh, a bit of your background here before we launch into the discussion. Um, Michael Mann is the Presidential Distinguished Professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences. He also has a secondary appointment in the Annenberg School for Communication. He is also the director of the Penn Center for Science Sustainability and the media. You've already heard about some of his background uh, academically. He's been a lead author on chapters in the IPCC, the third assessment, uh, has authored six books as co-founder of realclimate.org, which we'll get into some of that later. But, you know, I want to start, I want to jump right into why you wrote Our Fragile Moment. I actually, you know, in, in my commentary, I had a, I had the fortunate uh, luck to be able to screen the book ahead of time. And one of the statements that I made is that it really does a nice job of slaying, and this is a term I often use, slaying the zombie theory out there that climate scientists don't seem to understand past climates. So tell us about the motivation for this particular book. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I mean, there were sort of a number of motivations that came together. Uh, this is sort of my bread and butter. This is um, the science that I sort of was doing at the beginning of my career that resulted in the so-called hockey stick curve uh, we may or may not get into later. Um, and so uh, so that's sort of where I started out. And I've you know forged these other paths, um, uh, communication, uh, uh, climate change impacts. Um, uh, you and I are both very interested in that connection between climate change and extreme weather events, and there's a lot of really interesting science to be done there. Um, but my sort of uh, paleoclimate is where I started, and I had never really written a book about that. I'd written, you know, books about a whole bunch of other things, but not about sort of, um, you know, the, the very science that uh, I began my career with and today, we're, uh, which I still engage in. Um, but there was another thing going on here. Um, you, you're right that the, the zombie myths, um, you sometimes, you know, in social media, I know you and I all encounter you oh, know, yes. uh, climate, tr climate trolls, trolls who will say things like we'll tweet something about climate change. Don't you know that climate changes all the time? And it's well, yeah, we do know that. And the reason you know it is because of the science that we've been doing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how we would have missed that in grad school. <laughs> so I, 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 I wanted to put you know, provide that context. Yeah, climate does change naturally. And here's what it actually tells us. It's not a reason for casualty about the climate crisis. The lessons that, you know, that we derive from studying past climates actually deliver a message of, of urgency, uh, but also agency. And this has been sort of my tagline in recent years. 
uh, climate, the climate crisis, there's urgency, but there's also agency. It's not too late to do anything. And one of the things that I've also sort of struggled with in my last book, uh, The New Climate War, was really about sort of some of the tactics uh, that we're seeing used today as the science becomes undeniable, uh, but polluters are still looking for excuses to, you know, for business as usual to keep us addicted to fossil fuels. And so they're looking for other ways to sort of disengage climate advocates and activists. And one of those, ironically, is doomism. Um, if, you know, we can, if we become convinced it's too late to do anything about the climate crisis, then why do anything? It, it potentially leads us down that same path of disengagement as denial itself. And so I had seen the paleoclimate record often used. So now we're not talking about the deniers. We're talking about the doomers. <laughs> um, by doomers to argue that it's too late, for example, that some of these past uh, warming episodes were driven by runaway warming uh, due to the escape of methane. And this is underway now and there's nothing we can do about it. And we're all going to go extinct like the dinosaurs did within 10 years. I Increasingly, I'd been seeing this sort of mythology uh, sort of um, – percolate on social media and sort of infect uh, even climate advocates um, uh, with sort of doomism. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about what the paleoclimate record once again really does tell us, for example, about feedbacks and runaway climate change and, uh, you know, hysteresis loops to get a bit geeky with you. We love geeky terms here. <laughs> so, and I get a little bit into that. I wanted, um, you know, readers to understand the phenomenon of hysteresis, which is a physics phenomenon. It has to do with the fact that systems can behave in different ways if they come from different directions. Even if the parameters are the same, it matters what direction you came from. Did you get here by cooling from a hot climate or did you get here by warming from a cold climate and arrive at the same location? You can arrive in the same location and have a very different climate depending on where you came from. And that turns out to be really important in taking away lessons from the paleoclimate record. So I spend a little bit of time um, in, in several chapters getting into that as well. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Mann the big question right up front. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, 
where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Mann, who's now at the University of Pennsylvania, spent a good portion of his career prior to that at Penn State University as well. And, you know, early on in the book, you talk about the role of climate and climate change in humanity in general. And I don't think that people understand that connection, but you entitled your book, Our Fragile Moment. What is our fragile moment? Yeah, so thanks. And and yeah, you're right. I did spend uh, 16 good years of my life at Penn State uh, University, the Department of Meteorology, great department, a great school. Um, But uh, what was convenient was going from Penn State to Penn. Um, I didn't have to get new business cards. I just just crossed the state off of the uh, (laughs) – now it's a bad joke. Um, So, you know, the – it's really quite interesting. Climate change, uh, it's, it's important to understand that climate change um, has, you know, actually at times provided opportunities for us. We wouldn't be here today, for example, without the, you know, asteroid that collided with Earth um, 65 million years ago that famously killed off uh, the dinosaurs um, and that created niches for those small mammals that had been hiding in the rocks to turn into eventually primates and, and human beings. So that accident, um, the dramatic cooling from that asteroid collision, which was a climate change, um, that, that created a, a role for us. And the, uh, the, the warming and then the subsequent cooling um, over subsequent millions of years actually created um, uh, an environment for early primates that would eventually come down out of the trees when rainforests turned into savannas as the climate cooled and dried. And ultimately, once again, um, that that would sort of lay down uh, the path for the emergence of homo sapiens and human beings. Uh, and then even getting into sort of uh, more recent uh, time, uh, there was an event known as the Younger Dryas event at the end of the last ice age, uh, roughly 10,000 years ago. As we were coming out of the ice age, all this melting uh, ice, uh, the, the meltwater flowed into the North Atlantic um, uh, Meltwater, uh, fresh water is lighter than salty water. So that fresh water cap inhibited the sinking motion that drives this ocean conveyor that helps warm uh, the North Atlantic and surrounding regions. And so that sort of set, sent uh, parts of uh, Eurasia and the United States back into a little bit of an ice age. Um, and that dramatic cooling led to uh, drying in the Middle East, which forced foragers sort of early hunter-gatherers to um, subsistence, uh, to, to, to switch from subsistence agriculture to primitive, uh, um, you know, uh, cultivation. 
uh, of cereal crops, for example. And uh, so those Wheaties, you know, that, uh, you know, are on your breakfast table, right. you, you can thank the younger Dryas um, for that. And so so that created a, a niche And the, the uh, you know, the first real civilization, Mesopotamia, uh, that uh, formed about 6,000 years ago, there's a climate story there as well. Um, the further drying over the course of the Holocene required um, you know, and large engineering projects um, to, uh, you know, uh, primitive, uh, you know, uh, water um, engineering. Um, there's a there's a word for that, uh, which uh, is escaping me right now. Um, but <laughs> what um, the aqueducts are. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the aqueducts, we call that, um, uh, you know, farming uh, when you, uh, the water. <laughs> culture. I don't know. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Drawing on, a blank, on, but I think, well, this will be a homework assignment for our Weather Geeks viewers. Yeah, absolutely. Tweet um, us out there so, when you get it. Uh, so, you know, that that actually allowed for civilization because once you had engineering projects, uh, projects where you could tap into uh, river water and provide irrigation, uh, which I think was probably the word That's I was word looking, I for. looking for. Yes. Um, <laughs> then, then you know, you could um, support large civilizations, um, even when uh, resources are precious, as they were. Water resources were precious at that time. But Mesopotamia was also done in by climate change. And, and I won't give away the story, but it's a fascinating one as well. Um, so, you know, live by climate change, die by climate change. Sometimes it creates opportunities. Sometimes it creates stress and um, indeed the threat of collapse. And, and that's where we are now because we've benefited from some natural climate changes in, in the past. But the rate at which climate is changing now um, and the massive infrastructure that we rely upon to support now more than 8 billion people on this planet. We are so dependent on the stability of the climate that exists today. And yet we're exiting that period of the last 6,000 years where climate was so stable. That's the, the uh, you know, that's the moment that we're talking about. That's that fragile moment, that envelope of variability, which was, has been quite small over the past 6,000 years. And we're rapidly leaving that envelope. Um, and that's the problem. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that discussion because, again, it cuts to the core of the heart of what I see from many that claim people like you and I don't know what we're doing because they claim or dismiss this notion that we don't understand past climate or abrupt climate to the past changes of the past and so forth. You know, I we're the ones who, who, who researched that. Yeah, yeah those are the ones that came. Yeah, yeah, I think that was a really important point. You know, I always make the point that it's not either or. I mean, it's and, of course. There's naturally varying climate and so forth and uh, climate. I mean, greenhouse emissions and changes to our planet are affecting that climate. And you hit on the key word. I want listeners and viewers to understand this. The rate, the rate of these changes are happening over the scale of years to decades instead of hundreds of years to thousands of years. And that's the key. And that takes me to, uh, you know, uh, James Lovelock's Daisy World model and how it can illustrate a planet's tipping point. Talk to the viewers and listeners about the concepts of tipping points and whether you believe we've reached any. 
Yeah. So, you know, and we hear a lot about tipping points these days. And, you know, there are probably many tipping points in the climate system. There isn't a cliff that we go off at one and a half Celsius, three degree Fahrenheit warming is, is sometimes sort of framed that way, that there's this climate cliff. And if we exceed that amount of warming, we drop off the cliff. That's not the way it is. It's more like a minefield that we're walking out onto. And the, those mines are uh, include those potential tipping points where we warm the planet a certain amount. We start to melt. Um, the, the West Antarctic and Greenland ice sheet. And we're at the beginning of that process already. And we don't know exactly where that tipping point is where we warm the planet enough that the melting, say, of Greenland becomes irreversible. And there's nothing we can do to avoid not feet, but meters of, of sea level rise. Um, that's a tipping point. The collapse of that ocean conveyor that we were talking about before um, when all that fresh water rushed into the North Atlantic at the end of the last ice age, that younger driest uh, event, that was a tipping point where this ocean circulation system, uh, which is unstable, it can exist in two different forms, basically a vigorous conveyor, which delivers lots of heat poleward into the North Atlantic, or a basically you know, stopped conveyor, a dead conveyor that, that doesn't deliver that. Heat. I think many people that are listening to us may remember the, the movie The Day After Tomorrow. I believe some of the premise of that, even though the movie certainly had its scientific you know, judge, uh, issues, if you will. I agree. I, I there think were several things about that film that were not credible. Yeah, um, for yeah. example, Jake Gyllenhaal uh, participating in an academic decathlon. I just didn't. Be- <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Um, there, uh, so... You know, so those are tipping points um, where once you cross them, they're irreversible. Once that ocean circulation, you know, pattern flips off, it's going to stay that way maybe for a thousand years or more. And that's what happened with the Younger Dryas. That that event lasted about a thousand years until the ocean circulation sort of returned. And so Daisy World, which you mentioned, which was developed by the iconoclastic uh, James Lovelock. And I talk quite a bit about Lovelock in the book, as well as um, um, uh uh, Lynn Margulis, who was his co-author um, uh, on a lot of the related work on Gaia, for example. But Daisy World was developed by James Lovelock um, as an example of uh, Gaian processes where the Earth system can behave almost as if it seems to be alive, almost as, it seem, as if it seems to have a will or an intentionality. Um, and, and let me explain a little bit. Um, this is a planet where there's nothing that can grow but daisies. And those daisies only grow over a restricted temperature range. You make it too cold, they die off. You make it too hot, they die off. So there's a happy medium. Um, and there's sort of a, a, a temperature that they really like um, where they grow very rapidly. And, and that, that sort of falls off as you get hotter and colder. Uh, it's the only species that exists on this planet, which would otherwise be a planet of gray soil. Gray soil is very absorptive of sunlight. It heats up quite a bit. These daisies are white, so they reflect a fair amount of the sunlight and they cool the planet. And what Lovelock showed with uh, this example was that the daisies act in such a way as to help maintain temperatures within that range, that tolerable range within which they can live. And they don't do that because they have a mind, because they have a will. It's just the biology, physics, and chemistry that dictates that. And it's really remarkable. There are systems like Daisy World 
that you know we might we tend to anthropomorphize them and, and Gaia was sort of, it was literally an anthropomorphization of the planet the earth mother right. the planet can act in a way to try to maintain itself um, but it does that but not because there's an earth mother an earth goddess uh, not because daisies can think or plan or conspire um, it, it's simply the physics the chemistry and the biology comes together in a way where that just happens to be the case. And there are great examples of that on Earth. For example, the, the global carbon cycle. Um, as the sun, you know, the sun was much dimmer, the great Carl Sagan, this was uh, known as the faint young sun paradox. And, and the great Carl Sagan pointed this out um, many years ago, uh, that um, you know, the sun was about 30% less bright uh, when life first sort of emerged from the primordial ooze about four billion years ago. And uh, yet life existed. There was liquid water on the planet. If you do the calculation, and you and I, I know in our courses, have students go through those calculations. If you do the calculation, assume a modern day atmosphere and a sun that's 30% less bright, you get a frozen planet. Yeah. So clearly something's wrong. What Sagan realized was there had to be a larger greenhouse effect then to make up for that than there is today. Remarkable insight that, that Sagan had there, but even an equally remarkable insight was the recognition by, for example, Lovelock and Margulis, Lynn Margulis being uh, Carl Sagan's one-time life partner. It's uh, quite interesting, but remarkable uh, woman scientist who sadly passed away uh, a few years ago. Um, and one of the, I think, the only scientists I know who was responsible for two major paradigm uh, sort of two, two major new paradigms in science. One of them was endosymbiosis, the fact that the mitochondria and the chloroplast were once self-standing organisms that got absorbed into um, you know, cells and, and became symbiotic uh, as they are today. Um, but Gaia was uh, the other um, sort of fundamental paradigm-breaking hypothesis that she played a, a, you know, a, a, a role in along with Lovelock. And, and in this case, the Gaian sort of process here that helps maintain Earth within those livable bounds, as if Earth is trying to preserve life, is that as the sun gets brighter, the greenhouse effect gets lower. lower. And it doesn't do that because there's an Earth mother tweaking the knobs to try to make sure that she preserves the planet for us. It's because the chemistry, the physics, and the biology do that. The global carbon cycle, um, as you cool down the planet and there's less rainfall, there's less scavenging of carbon from the atmosphere, um, less runoff of carbon into the ocean, the greenhouse effect gets stronger because there's less scavenging of that carbon. And that warming offsets the cooling from the dimming sun, and it goes in the opposite direction as well. So that's one example of, um, and so one of the points I try to emphasize in the book is when you look, you know, over sort of earth history, you can see examples of stabilizing processes. That's, that's good news. Yes. Gaia, it's a stabilizing process. There's a certain amount of resilience in the climate system and, and that resilience, you know, buys us some margin of error, some margin of safety. But I point to other examples where once you go beyond a certain sort of, um, you know, one, one of those tipping points, uh, for example, once you venture far enough and fast enough from the state that you're in, and we're doing that right now, things can go in the other direction. Things can spin out of control. And that happened as well. Earth became a snowball. Um, 
about two billion years ago. And um, because things spun out of control, these feedback mechanisms that we talk about, rather than stabilizing mechanisms, we got vicious cycles um, and a runaway cooling. Uh, and runaway cooling is one example, but runaway warming is another possible example. Uh, we, systems like uh, Earth's climate can exhibit that sort of behavior as well. So I, I liken it to sort of a catamaran. If you've ever been on a catamaran, it's highly stable for small rolls. It's very stable for you know small perturbations, but it goes completely unstable for large perturbations. Yes, yes. Yeah, really a fascinating discussion here with Professor Michael Mann at the University of Pennsylvania. When we come back, I'm going to bring up his famous to some infamous, but for no reason, hockey stick. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. You can watch us on the Weather Channel streaming app, or you can listen to us on a podcast where you get your favorite podcast. Talking with uh, renowned scholar and scientist Michael Mann from University of Pennsylvania. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. You know, it's it's just an honor to have Michael on the show. I mean, he's you know, he's someone that right back at you, my friend. Well, right you back know, at you. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, but you, you, he's someone who. He understands the scholarship, but also understands how to communicate. It. And I think you've seen that now two decades. Wow. It's been that long. It's been over two decades, I guess, or uh, that Raymond Bradley and Mal Malcolm Pub um, Hughes and yourself, yeah, I guess, uh, published the hockey stick curve. 
talk to us about what the hockey stick curve is and where is it today contextually in our current climate system? Yeah, thanks. And I think it, it celebrated its, I forgot, it was at the silver anniversary, the 25th anniversary. You're, 20, you're 25 years, wow. 25th anniversary as of Earth Day um, last, uh, yeah, this last that's, year. that's right. Yeah. Hard, hard to believe. A lot of water under the bridge. Uh, so, yeah, on Earth Day 1998, when I was a young uh, postdoc at the University of Massachusetts, uh, we published uh, this article in the journal Nature presenting a reconstruction of how temperatures had varied over the past six centuries. We only, you know, as you know, we only have about a century and a half, maybe widespread thermometer measurements that allow us to construct a global temperature curve, a historical global temperature curve. If we want to go back further, we've got to turn to uh, natural archives that um, indirectly tell us about past climate, tree rings and corals and ice cores and ocean sediments and lake sediments and speleothems, which are stalactites and stalagmites, the calcite uh, in them. We can uh, use the annual bands and the isotopes of oxygen and the calcite to infer something about past rainfall. And it's a remarkable sort of detective problem. And there are thousands of scientists in our field who have contributed to this huge database of these so-called proxy uh, indicators of climate that go back centuries and, and millennia. And what we did was simply, to, frankly, to take advantage of their hard work and try to assimilate all the information collectively in these various proxy records that existed um, to, to reconstruct how surface temperature patterns had changed in the past. And we were really interested in those patterns to see, you know, whether, uh, you know, what, what was happening with the El Nino phenomenon or what happened during years where there were large volcanic eruptions, um, some areas warm, some cool, because the atmospheric circulation can change. And you can learn a lot about climate dynamics from looking at the patterns of response. And same thing with El Nino. You can look at the pattern of response to see how it impacted regions. Those were the interesting scientific questions that really drove us. But in the end, the only thing that really got widespread attention was what happens when you average over those patterns which to me are really interesting to just get a single number, the average temperature over the northern hemisphere for each year. And if you plot that number back in time, you get a curve that looks like a hockey stick because the warming of the past century, that's the blade, is without precedent as far back as we were able to go. That's the handle. And it really, I think, you know, it, when it came out in 1998, we already knew, you know, scientists like us, we knew that climate change was real, that human-caused climate change was real. The IPCC had concluded already in their second assessment report back in 1995 that there was a discernible human uh, impact on the planet, on the climate. But the, the hockey stick, I think, conveyed that in, a, in an easily digestible way. Um, it wasn't sort of abstract detection and attribution studies based on comparing model patterns and observational patterns. It was just this curve <laughs> that told us something was amiss. And so it got a lot of attention. It got widespread um, you know, publicity when the article came out. Uh, but it also got attention from the critics, from those looking to discredit the case for concern. And the hockey stick was a real problem for them because people could get it. You could just look at the hockey stick and understand um, that we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> and, uh, and there you go. And from that point on, my entire career went on a different trajectory because, uh, you know, 
I had imagined I would be, you know, just spending my life in a lab room on a computer, crunching data, running models, the sort of stuff, the nerdy stuff that I enjoy doing, um, uh, why I went into science. But because of the role that the hockey stick played, whether I liked it or not, I was now sort of under scrutiny. I was in the public sphere and I had to decide, you know, what I was going to do with that. Now, before I get to my last question, I just looked at my watch and wow, we're almost at the end of our time. We could talk for two hours, we my could, friend. We really Easily. could talk for more yeah. than that. I probably, yeah, I, I have one additional question I want to ask you about the book, but I want to kind of kind of come to what we're living right now where we're seeing just um, tremendous heat waves. We're seeing uh, extraordinary rainfall rates and storms. I mean, I'm just here in Georgia where we are, just some storms we've had in the past few days. The rain rates are just ridiculous, and it's consistent with what we understand from the basic physics principles of the Clausius Clapeyron and things that we have long talked about as scientists. Uh, well, you know, it, it's yeah. our backyards, right? And you look at um, here in Philadelphia, of course, I was smelling wildfire smoke a oh, month yes. ago. Yes. And yeah. it was a, you know, family tragic, um, you know, uh, a, a, a tragic loss of life with these flash floods um, that killed yeah. a number of people in Bucks, nearby Bucks County. Just a remarkable flash floods, huge torrents of water. And you and I know that's that that is sort of exactly what we expect to see as the atmosphere warms up. When it rains, you're going to get more rain um, in, yeah. in short bursts of time. Short bursts of time, time. Yeah. And it's falling on in more imperviousness as well, which exacerbates the, the flood issue. And so that's what I wanted to kind of ask you before I ask you my final question is, are there things you're seeing about extreme weather, about sea level, about the thermohaline circulation? Are, is there one or two things that you were seeing that really say, yeah, I mean, we tried to tell you this was going to happen. I mean, there are many things, obviously, but is there one or two things that really catch your attention that say, yep, see, this is what we said was going to happen? Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, it, it, it's it's a really good one, and, and and you know, and because there's some nuance here, as you and I, and we struggle with this on social media, trying to explain people like, hey, if you look at the big picture, the models are right on. Um, you know, the 2023 as warm as it is, is right within the range that the models predicted where we would be if we continued to burn fossil fuels and warm up the planet with carbon pollution as we've done. And so as my good friend uh, is uh, no longer with us, um, Steve Schneider used to say, the truth is bad enough. We don't have to invent you know, uh, scenarios that, um, you know, runaway warming triggered by massive amounts of methane that are emerging. Uh, the paleo climate record doesn't support that, <laughs> uh, despite the claims made by sort of the doomers that the paleo climate record tells us that, no, it doesn't. Uh, what the paleo climate record reaffirms is the basic sensitivity of the climate system that is embodied in the models that we use that are predicting quite well, sadly. You know, as I've said before, I'm sure you've said the same thing. As climate scientists, we actually hate to see our predictions come true. But that's well, what's Of course, happening. I've got two kids that are going to have to deal with what, what's happening now. So yeah. I, I want to be wrong. I'd, I'd love to be wrong. Unfortunately, yeah. it doesn't look like we are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, no, absolutely. And so, you know, so the truth is bad enough. That having been said, there are some things where I think reality is is sort of um, is exceeding what the models predicted. Uh, and 
ice melt, sea level rise is one of those um, areas. And, and, and obviously, uh, that is a, a huge risk, um, a huge threat to coastal you know, communities and cities around the world. The fact that the ice sheets are already starting to lose ice faster than we expected, contributing to sea level. We're actually seeing that upturn in sea level rise that we predicted. Um, we're seeing, you know, that it's no longer linear. It's actually curving up as we predicted we would see. And that's what's happening as those ice sheets are now starting to kick in. Um, that's a problem and that's exceeding. The models sometimes are conservative in the assumptions that they make. And that's been true of our ice sheet modeling. And we're seeing that now in changes that are happening faster than those early models predicted. Another area, and I know you and I both work in, in this area, that sort of climate change extreme weather ne uh, nexus. And some of our work has looked at the behavior of the jet stream and, and how you get these very stable wiggly patterns that give us these very persistent weather extremes like the wildfires, the high pressure and hot heat domes and wildfires out west, the tremendous flooding that we've seen uh, back east. Um, these regimes are sort of um, more persistent than the, we would expect from the models. And it's that persistence. When the same region gets baked day after day, that's when you get extreme drought and wildfires. When that same region gets rained on day after day after day, that's when you get catastrophic flooding. And we're seeing more persistence in those extreme weather events than the models would suggest we should be seeing. And, and some of our work is involved in trying to understand the jet stream dynamics behind that, why, why that might be true. And so, you know, as I like to say, uh, uncertainty is not our friend here. The uncertainties in some respects are breaking, not in our favor, but against us. Yeah. Just fascinating. And yeah, that, that, that jet stream dynamics is important. And it's really one of the ways that whether where you live uh, is connected to broader climate change, because yeah. oftentimes people don't make I think people don't the people to weather's local to people. It's like they look at their app and they want to know if it's raining on their tomato plant. But, you know, El Nino and jet stream patterns and responses to this broader climate change is a way that these bigger picture processes come back to your backyard. Yeah. But I want to come back to the last question with um, our fragile moment. You say it's not too late. If you were to sort of talk to our viewers and listeners today, I mean, what is a key sort of takeaway from the book? And is there any hope? Yeah, thanks. You know, one of the things that I try to show from the, the record of Earth's climate history, paleoclimate, as we call it, uh, going back billions of years, is that there are these dueling narratives that we've talked about of sort of stability and fragility, of resilience and fragility. And we can look at some past episodes like Snowball Earth or the PETM, this, uh, this, this period of rapid warming 50 million years ago. Um, and, I, I, and I go into some detail about that and what it tells us, for example, about uh, CO2 and the role of methane and where we are today and how much warming we could see. Um, there are sort of these dueling uh, narratives. I, I think of them as sort of like shoulder angels, the, the, the devil and the angel uh, on your shoulder, alternatively telling you two different things. That's what the paleoclimate record is. It's these uh, these dueling, uh, you know, uh, uh, shoulder angels. Um, and, 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 and in the end, what it really tells us is that there is some resilience in the climate system. There is some sort of margin of flexibility, of stability, of resilience 
Um, and that's, you know, allowed human civilization to flourish. But it's also very clear that if you hit the system hard enough and fast enough, it can spin out of control. We're not there yet, but we could be there easily in a matter of decades if we don't act now. So in the end, it comes back to what my message always seems to be these days, because that's what the science has been telling me. And that's the message that I feel people have to hear that the science tells us that there is urgency. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. This is an existential crisis. It is an emergency, and we do have to act now. And by now, I mean right now. <laughs> we need to be bringing carbon emissions down right now. But yeah. there is agency. It's not too late to prevent such catastrophic uh, warming of the planet where we really do endanger all of human civilization and other living things as well. That's a possible future. That's a dystopian possible future, but it is not a preordained future at this point. And that's also what the Palu climate record tells us. Well, we really have to end it there, but it just sets up a part two because I could talk to Professor Mann for forever on this topic uh, by the time you view this uh, episode and listen to this podcast, our fragile moment should be out, uh, as my, as I understand it. I, I think we are releasing this right around the time that the the book is coming out. So I'm sure you can find it at all the the, the book outlets online and in bookstores. Is that correct? It, it is. And and uh, let me just echo that. I could talk with you for hours, my friend. <laughs> I look forward to doing it again. Uh, absolutely. I look forward to seeing you soon. We have to end it there. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I want to thank my guest today, Professor Michael Mann from the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Marshall. And we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.